0: Welcome to the Benefits Compliance Podcast. My name is Casey Barner, and I'm here with my colleague, the awesome and fabulous Suzanne Spradley. (laughs) We are both attorneys with NFP's Benefits Compliance Department. During this podcast, we are going to tackle a very hot subject. So put on your mitts, put on your gloves, get ready to cook, the new (laughs) association health plan rules, and what it means to you as employers. Suzanne... Let's start by giving a quick overview of what an association health plan is, sometimes referred to as AHPs.
1: That's true, Casey. I think we will talk about it as AHP, just not to drag this out, but uh, we did a prior podcast on this subject. It's more relevant today because of some final rules that were recently released by the Department of Labor. Their effort is to try to make AHPs um, more accessible and make them more available, and so The theory is, under the new rule, that AHPs can enable small businesses to come together at an association level. They'll pool their employees into a group, and the aim is to take advantage of the lesser restrictive large group market. So instead of a small group and small employer having to buy something in the small group market, they will come together with other employers, band together, and be able to go into the large group market and uh, not have to deal with some of those restrictions that are in the small group market. So that's the general idea is let's let's make these more available, let's allow small employers um, and some individuals, as we'll talk about later, come together. What are some of the things that they will be able to avoid in the small group market? Um, Essential health benefit standards, some community rating restrictions that really restrict how the premiums can be, um, how the policies can be rated. So some of these things are uh, expected to increase the cost of the product, and by being able to go into a large group market where there's more flexibility, the idea is that we could see lower premiums occur. So you may be asking, what is an association health plan? So let's start there. Um, it could be either fully insured arrangement where the policy is actually held at the association level. It could also be a self-insured arrangement where the association Self-insurers for the members' medical claims. Um, In the context of our clients, we are going to be focusing on it as if it's employers. So the AHPS would be be typically subject to ERISA, but they would also continue to be governed by state laws in which they operate. So they would be—they'd have the state insurance department regulations, and then the DOL regulations, both of which they would be governed by. It is important to remember there are AHPs in place right now. The final regulations do not replace replace the prior regulations. So if you have an AHP in place right now, it can continue to operate as it has. This is just providing an alternative. So um, it has expanded the definition of employer under ERISA and how employers can qualify as a single employer for the purpose of group coverage, and we will get into all of that and unpack it in a bit, but just uh, keep that in mind that the idea is really to allow more small employers to be able to come together and buy a large group product in essence.
0: Got it, Suzanne. So, Association Health Plans have been around for a very long time. What was the issue with the prior regulatory framework? Why are we talking about Association Health Plans in 2018?
1: Well, there's a number of issues. I will speak to one um, in particular, which I alluded to, one of the issues is that under the current regulatory framework, the association size is disregarded in determining uh, for purposes of a member of the association whether they would be covered by large group or small group coverage. So if you had a small employer, if they were part of an association of a 1,000 members, a 1,000 employers, um, the rules currently said – it doesn't matter that you've got a thousand people in your group. You're going to look down to the individual member size and have to provide and an, a product based on their individual size. So there was not really a lot of benefit in joining an association from that perspective.
0: But isn't there a way for an association not to be disregarded?
1: So currently there has been a way for uh, the association to not be disregarded, meaning and when we talk about the association being disregarded, it's a doctrine called the look through so, again, they're looking through to the size of the individual member employer. Um, and so, yes, this is where some of the changes have occurred in the new rule. This is going to get into a bit of a technical discussion, but with this, you have to get in the weeds somewhat. So, the DOL has recognized an association as sponsoring a single multiple employer plan if certain factors were present. And we're really going to be focusing on three areas and we'll briefly describe what those three areas are, those three general requirements, and we'll talk about how they changed under the new rule. I will say don't expect this podcast to be a full technical overview of the final rule. We've got some written materials for that. What we really want to do is be able to kind of hit what those three technical or three areas are, how they've changed, but, but more importantly, talk about whether those AHPs can be formed tomorrow, for example. What are those things that will encumber a new AHP from forming or a new plan to be written, uh, you know, shortly? So I'm going to talk about these as kind of buckets. So there's three buckets that are um, uh, that uh, impact whether a AHP is considered a single plan or multiple plans under ERISA. And remember, the reason we're focusing on ERISA is because our clients are employers, and ERISA is concerned with employer plans. So the first is that the association must have been formed for a business purpose that's unrelated to providing benefits. Why is this? And I, you know, I used to try to figure out what, what was so important by that. And these rules are really designed because they want to say this product, this association health plan has to be different than what's offered on the insurance market. We want this to be distinct from an insurance carrier. This is an employer plan. And so this new rule was relaxed by saying, okay, it, it, it can now be the primary purpose that an association formed is formed is to offer benefits. However, in the final rule, they said that there must be another substantial business purpose that's not related to providing benefits for the association to be formed. So is substantial defined? No, it wasn't defined. So what does this mean? Well, there was a safe harbor in the final rule that said that as long as the association is viable, even if the absence, even in the absence of sponsoring a plan, then it would be considered to meet this requirement. So some of the examples they gave as to other purposes that the association could be formed for would be, for example, if they offered some classes or some educational materials to their group members if they set standards for an industry, if they engaged in PR activities on their member's behalf, all of these things that they mentioned in the final rule were very, really did not set a high bar. So I don't think any association will have a difficult time meeting this initial bucket requirement.
0: Thank you, Suzanne. That was an awesome first bucket. I think you have two more buckets you need to fill. So what are the other requirements?
1: Okay, so the next one, which is really I think uh, probably where we, we really see the expanded access occurring is under this idea of commonality of interest. So again, thinking to ERISA is trying to make sure that whatever plan is being offered under AHPs is for an employer purpose. They really looked at wanting the association to be stepping in the shoes of an employer. So they narrowly interpret this idea that there must be a common interest among those members to be a single employer Um, And the courts also interestingly held that there has to be some cohesive relationship between the provider of the benefits and the recipient of the benefits so that the entity that maintained the plan, if it was the association, had to be tied to individual participants by a common economic or representational interest. So you can see how that was really narrow and really made it difficult for an association to be considered a single plan or be able to offer a single plan you know, and I think if you keep this in mind, this idea in mind, which I'll just, I'll mention in just a moment, it's, it's helpful for understanding the framework of commonality of interest, but there, the DOL's historical approach to the issue was really designed to ensure that they were regulating an employee benefit plan. It was focused on employment-based arrangements rather than it being something that was really just, um, instead of it being a commercial insurance arrangement. So, They didn't want the plan to look merely like an insurance product that was offered in the market to just a group of people or group of employers that really wanted it to be tied more closely to an employer relationship. So this is where the relaxation of the rules has come in under the final rules. It's the context of the term employer and indirectly in the interest of an employer under ERISA. So under the final rules, associations could meet the commonality of interest criteria If their members were in the same trade, the same industry, the same line of business or profession, or maintained their principal place of business in a region that was within their state or within the same metropolitan region, even if it crossed state lines like Washington, D.C., New York, Kansas City, metropolitan area. So you can see how that's a much looser standard than having to have common economic interest between the association and the individuals who were covered by the plan. And then the third bucket is really this idea of control, and this was not changed much from how it has been operating currently, and the idea is that they want the employer members to exercise control over the program, again, because they don't want it to look like an insurance structure. They want it to look like the plan is is for the benefit of the employers and employees, so there has to be a formal organizational structure, governing body, bylaws for the AHP, Uh, to ensure that the AHP is acting in the interest of the employers. Um, This could look like the employer is that there's regular elections of officers that control the association, and those are are elected by the employer members of the association. So the the final bucket, the third bucket, is this idea of employers having control over the AHP.
0: Awesome. Thank you, Suzanne. I like the bucket analogy. So I've heard something about individuals being able to join association health plans or AHPs. And I know that's a big part of our discussion today. Now that we know a little bit about the background of AHPs and requirements, what about individuals joining AHPs? Why is that so significant?
1: This really does expand it. And it's really kind of created a lot of talk as and, and some people who are in opposition of the AHP rules. And we'll talk about that and why. Um, but now a certain type of individuals, someone called a working owner, which is like a sole proprietor or, you know, any other self-employed individual, is allowed to join an AHP. And so you may be asking, why would they let these individuals join if they want the HP to look like a group of employers and less like, you know, the risk pull up carrier? So again, the idea is they're trying to expand access and they had to defend it legally to say that the DOL regulations actually permit it. Um, There is a regulation that excludes plans without employees from the definition of an employee benefit plan under ERISA, but it doesn't prevent sole proprietors from being a participant in a plan. So the working owner would be treated as an employee, and their business would be treated as the employer for purposes of being an employer member of a bona fide association. So in this context, and it's really limited to this context, a working owner um, is an employee of their business, and their business is really seen as the employer of the working owner. Um, And again, it's it's just limited to this context. There are some stipulations about the working owner, like they have to work a certain number of hours, make a, a minimum income from the business but it certainly opens up this whole idea of who can join an association health plan. And it really creates some concern for others that it's going to be pulling individuals from the individual market and create instability there. So if these association health plans are rolled out and if they are able to offer products at a lower price point because they don't have all the restrictions of the individual or the small group market, then there's concern that they will be pulling healthy individuals out of the individual market and create some adverse selection there which would drive up the prices in the individual market that all is theory remains to be seen whether that would occur or not but that's where some of the concern lies when you hear about working owners joining ahps in addition to the fact that we we often won't have claims experience and know that uh, going in
0: very interesting discussion suzanne and some very good points can we move now to what are the hurdles that are causing us to hesitate to implement these AHPs today? All of the questions we're being asked is, can we start tomorrow? Why not today? So what are the hurdles?
1: Right. Well, first of all, the rules have a staggered applicability date. Um, the first being September 1 of this year for a fully insured AHP, um, January 1 of 2019 for existing self-insured AHPs, and then April 1 of 2019 for new self-insured AHP. So let's start with the fully insured plans. The main issue will be first, whether you can find a carrier who has an interest in offering the plan. And there's many carriers who have come out and said, we have zero interest in doing this. We have heard of a few and we are working with our national contacts to see if those carriers are willing to put something into place and because we certainly have an interest out there. Nonetheless, let's say we have a national carrier interested in doing this type of a plan. It will still take them time to design their plan, to have it filed with the insurance department and obtain the determine the rates and then market the plan. So um, I don't see how a fully insured carrier could put this in place by September of this year. Um, but if they, they can, then we will certainly be involved. Uh, the next biggest hurdle is really going to be state laws, and those are significant. So states are the primary regulators of health insurance, They generally have very broad authority to regulate AHPs if they're fully insured and that uh, even obviously when they're self-insured, if they're a MIWA. Um, And that would mean looking at financial solvency, their marketing, their rating practices, the contracts themselves. And so we have to look at what um, barriers there are at the state law level. For example, states prohibit some newly formed AMIWA's at all. And AMIWA is a multiple employer welfare arrangement. So anytime you join multiple employers together under one plan, you, you likely are forming AMIWA. Um, so there's also state laws that would prohibit uh, an association to form if they hadn't been or a, an association to offer a plan if they hadn't been in existence for a certain number of years, if they don't have a certain number of individuals within their association um, so other states will still apply that look-through standard and will look through to the size of the underlying member to determine which product could be offered to them. So there's a number of different uh, state issues that are out there that we're trying to unpack and, and get a full understanding of how this would uh, affect a national offering under an AHP, um, none, not the least of which is if you have an AHP that is, has a policy issued in Illinois, for example, could you have members in Texas if Texas was a state that prohibited AHPs in their state. I'm not saying that they are, but we will watch, be watching for how the states react, whether they want to lessen some of their regulations, whether they want to tighten them to make it more difficult in their states. I will say the DEL, the DOL is watching as well, and they signaled that they could still take further action to exempt at least self-insured AHPs from most insurance regulation. So that will be really significant to watch to see if they will go to that level Um, And we will continue to report on any developments. But if it does, what it means is that the DOL would be the primary regulator of coverage that's marketed through self-insured AHPs. The states would no longer be able to require them to meet certain state rating, um, marketing standards, but they also wouldn't assist with consumer problems. So you would have to appeal to a federal agency, not a state Department of Insurance, for help if there was an issue.
0: Thank you, Suzanne. And when you say react, you really do mean react. I mean, I know California, what's the day after, the day of the final rule, they had a statement on AHPs. And I know other states are following suit. Is there anything else significant that we should know about with AHPs, non-discrimination perhaps?
1: Yeah, so one of the things we didn't touch on were the non-discrimination rules and, and what those look like. If and, and I don't want to get into too deeply in this, but, it, you know, as you know, HIPAA prohibits employers from discriminating in terms of benefits or premium costs, et cetera, on the basis of health status of an individual. So they've taken those and they've expanded them to the AHPs, to say, basically, uh, an AHP is prohibited from restricting employer membership based on any individual's health factor within that employer membership. So they can't look at claims experience, uh, medical history, disability, anything to determine whether they will allow that employer to join. Um, they also require the HPS to comply with the, the HIPAA non-discrimination rules generally as it relates to the benefits and the premiums and required contribution And they prohibit AHPs from treating employees of different employer members as distinct groups as it relates to health factors. So that means that you cannot rate an employer member based on claims experience. So um, we realize and they realize that current AHPs do charge members different rates based on claims experience. And they can continue to do so as long as they meet the prior requirements for forming an AHP. If they are going to rely on the new rules, then they have to work with the new non-discrimination requirements, which means that really there's going, so there's no claims rating um, between members on, so you couldn't have, for example, employer A, employer B, and employer C within an association, each having different rates based on claims experience. That's prohibited under the new final rules. It's not prohibited under the prior rules. However, According to the final rules, an AHP could charge different premiums to different employers based on non-health issues. So it could be based on age, industry, gender, other non-health factors. And I will put a caveat in there as long as there wasn't another rule that prohibited it. So there could be a state non-discrimination rule that, for example, didn't allow rating based on gender or something else. So I always put that caveat in there that there could be something else that would affect that type of discrimination, but inherently insurance is discriminatory. We grew up under laws that allowed uh, rates to be based off of gender, off of age, and et cetera.
0: Absolutely, Suzanne. Thank you for that information. That was very valuable. Well, now it's time for me to wrap it up. So it sounds like we do have some barriers as far as association health plans are concerned or AHPs, but we can be certain that developments are coming. So be on the lookout for more information from our NFP compliance team on AHPs and any developments that happen, whether it's regulations, states, or carrier information. And with that being said, that's a wrap, Suzanne.
1: That's a wrap. Thank you, Casey.